What if we had pairs of people across the political divide having conversations publicly? I think we don't even know what that looks like anymore. My next guest is Debbie Irving. Uh, she's an educator and she's author of the acclaimed book, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. This is the story of her two steps forward, one step back journey away from what she calls racial ignorance. Good morning, Debbie. Debbie, good morning. You've been listening to Jane. I know you, you know Chris uh, personally, you've had a chance to work with him. Why now is your book, why do you think your book is, is getting so much more attention uh, given that it was written back in 2014? Well, I think, you know, my book, seeks to be the 101 for white people. And this is this re-education that we have to do in this country and white people. For instance, I am someone who believed that there were different races. I thought we were biologically different as you know, Jane is suggesting. I totally fell for that. And that and, and a million other lies in my high class education. And when I recognized how uneducated I was despite my great education, I felt like um, I had to write the book that I thought would have woken me up sooner. Um, I couldn't find a 101 when I started to realize what was what. And I think that that is what a lot of people, especially after the brutal public murder of George Floyd this summer, there were a lot of people who couldn't stay in denial anymore. Um, and so I think that's why suddenly there was a surge. Yeah. You know, your, your book, Debbie, is part memoir. It's your personal story of, like you said, your own journey from growing up uh, privileged uh, in Massachusetts and coming to your own aha moment. And you're pretty brutally honest in your book about some of your experiences. Uh, again, I'll ask you, like I asked Chris, in terms of what was his aha moment, what was it for you uh, that, that was that moment where you decided that you needed to speak out and, and recognize that your whiteness uh, gave you certain privileges that other individuals didn't have. The moment for me was when I went from understanding racism as something that happens between two people um, to something that's institutional. And for me, it was learning about the practice of redlining uh, and the way that intersected with the GI Bill following World War II. So my father had been in the Navy in World War II. I knew my parents had bought their first home on that GI Bill, I knew my dad had gone to law school for free on that GI Bill. And it was when I learned that that GI Bill uh, was mostly not accessible to the you know, 2 million plus uh, black and brown GIs, who, by the way, did I know there were black and brown GIs in World War II? No, I didn't. They weren't in my curriculum. They weren't in my history books. They weren't in my movies. They weren't in my TV shows. They weren't in my family stories. They weren't anywhere. They were completely erased from history. And so when I learned that one fact, uh, you know, I simultaneously um, understood uh, that, that, I had, that something big had been kept from me and I was just scratching the surface. Um, and, and so that was really, that was, a, that was a major wake up. There were many more, but that was a big one. You know, I've read tons of reviews uh, uh, on Amazon, you got like 1,500 reviews, which is you know, a large number of reviews for a book. But they vacillated, uh, Debbie, from high praise, people really commending you for having the courage to tell your story, for using your personal story to talk about race, uh, to you know, use it to expose issues of, of white privilege that so many people are even afraid to talk about. 
But then there were some critiques that I read, people who were questioning how a white woman, a privileged white woman such as yourself, uh, could really educate others on race. How do you respond to, to some of, of those critiques? Well, I think, you know, I agree with Chris that, that this is an addiction, that uh, whiteness is an addiction. And my addiction was not to hate. My addiction was to, I would say, comfort. Comfort that my whiteness afforded me. And, um, you know, b believing in my own superiority, not even at a conscious level, really deep down, uh, feeling well, a sense this, of- Debbie, oh, I just want to ask you this because it, yeah. it triggered something for me. Chris talked about learning those kinds of, of, you know, his belief system was formed by his dad who blamed African-Americans and Latinos for his problems when in actuality it was his alcoholism. What were you hearing in your household? What were your parents telling you about, you know, minorities of black people, Latino people? You know, what, what were those conversations like in your home? So I had a really different upbringing equally as racist. We didn't talk about race. I grew up in this era where we were supposed to be colorblind, which meant that you weren't even supposed to see it as if that would have been possible. And therefore talking about it was seen as rude. And yet, and my parents were very kind. And so there's, this is where class comes in. I think my parents didn't need to worry that so-and-so was, you know, this or that person uh, was taking his or her job. So we developed this very, um, this unbelievable white savior syndrome complex. Our role in society was going to have help as women, white women especially, was to have these helping and fixing jobs, which are equally dangerous. You know, it's people like me who end up in the teaching field and uh, social services. Sometimes people call this the white female um, uh, nonprofit industrial complex, uh, where we fill those jobs and we don't know about race and racism. And we think that we have what it takes to help and fix. And we don't understand the systems that we've been raised in. And so, you know, the only things I think I can count on one hand, the number of times my parents referenced race, and they were really damaging. They said things, I remember my father said, boy, those musicians, he was a jazz musician himself, boy, those musicians, uh, those black guys sure have rhythm. Or maybe he used, you know, another term, like colored or something of the time. But the point was they... They, so it establishes for me this idea that there is a they and that they are biologically different. Um, he also once watching a basketball said, said, boy, they sure can jump. So now it's feeding me ideas again about biological difference. So it doesn't even need to be negative. It's just the establishment of an us and a they and these physical traits that fall along, you know, uh, melanin lines. And so that was more how it played out for me, the utter absence of talking about it. And, and again, history that had nothing for me. How did you, I love how you talk about white females and, and this kind of savior complex. Uh, and we see that a lot. And we see these divides happen, particularly in feminist groups between African-American women, women of color and white women. And this notion that, that white women know better and that you know they're going to superimpose uh, on women of color, people of color, you know what the standards should be, what you know what the agenda should be. How did your white friends, which I imagine you were a part of a circle of friends who thought similarly to you, how did they respond to you deciding that you wanted to break out of that circle and become an independent thinker and think about these issues in a more critical and analytical way? Uh, that's been really varied. 
Um, some people jumped right, you know, one of my sisters, uh, I'm my biological sister, came right along with me, you know, started sending me articles, what are you learning? And so we're right in it. Um, and then there are people who, you know, in my culture, you don't tell someone off, you simply stop talking to them. Mm. And so I, there was silence. Um, and I have definitely come across, you know, white fragility, where I do try to say to somebody, you know, that comment you just made, that language you just used, you know, can I offer you a different opinion? And then they don't want to talk to me. So mm. uh, it's, it's been variable. I will tell you that I have been pleasantly uh, heartened and surprised by the number of white people um, who were previously in my life who have are waking up and not just because of me, but because of, you know, what's in all the waking up that's happening. Um, but the, the number of people who I meet all around the country who are doing such good work, um, who are working in multiracial coalitions, who are re-educating themselves, who are learning to be brave, because this is another thing that happens in white circles, especially white female circles. Many of us are raised to not rock the boat. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, which means not only are we taught not to talk about race, we're told not to, to talk about anything that might be upsetting, which then renders people terrified of saying something wrong. And I'm watching people break that cultural pattern. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you feel though me some hope. Maybe when you when you talk about these positive things that are happening and you're watching people break these patterns you're you're seeing all this great work and then you look at saturday you look at you know the it wasn't obviously a million people nowhere near a million people maybe some estimates you know a couple of thousand maybe let's give them ten thousand people out there with you know full-on trump gear shouting, screaming, all the interviews, people are again resisting the notion that, that Joe Biden has won this election fair and square, uh, continuing, there were some signs up, there was, you know, somebody held a sign up during one of the Fox News segments, like we're coming for you black folks, Indians, you know, this, this racist sign coming for blacks and Indians. So this is all happening while you're talking about the progress. So, so how, how, what are we to make of this split, this split scene that's happening in America right now? The racist signs, the races who are, you know, more emboldened than ever. And then the people you're talking about who are trying to do the work of dismantling racism. Right, and I actually, I'm much less worried about the small number, the relatively small number of people on the streets than I am the people who voted for Donald Trump. Um, because it takes such intention to start to break these cycles, to relearn, to, to learn to adapt different cultural tools that allow us to speak up and speak out, stand up for what we believe in. Um, every time there's been racial progress in the United States, there has been in equal or greater measure resistance to it, a recalibration of white supremacy. Um, and white supremacy, as I define it, is not just KKK, neo-Nazi. I mean, that's an extreme expression. We're just talking about a value system, a philosophy, an ideology that came to the United States with Europeans. And it says that white landowning men who have Christian faith, we didn't use the term cisgender and heterosexual back then, but all of that, you know, able, that's the value system. And everybody else is some deviation from that. That's white supremacy. Um, so I feel like the project that we're involved in in the United States is, are we, some people are pushing and are continuing a legacy of pushing for a multicultural pluralistic democracy that's life, liberty, justice for all. That's the promise. And other people are scared 
I was about to say a bad word about that. And, and oh. you know, and are, and are fighting for it. So, um, so what do you say to those people who are fearful that they are losing their privilege, that they're using, losing their priority, and that somehow making room for everyone to, to you know, experience, you know, this, this life, liberty, and equity that, that is our aspiration, that somehow to do that means that they have to be on the losing end. That yes. for me to progress, you have to regress. What do you say to those people who truly believe that and who say, I'm not a racist? They raise their hands, you know, really high to say, I'm not racist. You know, they, they point to a black friend, they point to a Latino friend, they, they say they, you know, maybe even voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So let's not suggest that all these people voted for Donald Trump. Some of these same people voted for the Biden-Harris ticket as well. Yeah. I mean, I agree with Jane that these are, we are all cousins, especially though we white people have to reach out to our white cousins and friends and circles. It is our job to uh, figure out. And I think right now it's almost impossible. There's, they're so escalated. Um, I watched an interview the other day with a journalist trying to share some actual election facts with one of these protesters on the street. And she simply could not take it in. She, she, ref, you know, she was sure the journalist was lying. I can't, now I can't trust journalists. Um, and so I'm not sure how we work our way out of this totally divided country. Um, I, I, I do know that, that knowledge has to be a huge part of it. We have to correct our knowledge system. We have to fill it with real information, stories told by real people. I keep thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had the fireside chat, like instead of having a patriarchal president up there, what if we had pairs of people across the political divide having conversations publicly? Um, trying to find common ground. I mean, I, I think we don't even know what that looks like anymore. Yeah. Debbie, before I let you go, you know, you, you talk about uh, coming into an awareness of your whiteness and your white privilege, but you do know so many working class whites, uh, low, low income white people say that the whole concept of white privilege is complete nonsense. Uh, they reject it as a construct. They, they say, look, I, I'm poor. I'm you know, I don't have a job or, or my kid is on, you know, drugs or we've been uh, part of the criminal justice system. So they, they don't buy into the notion that because they're white, that somehow they have privilege. How do you address those people who aren't even willing to acknowledge that because of their whiteness, despite the fact that they may be low income or middle income or working income or, or have any number of problems, but still because they're white, they do enjoy privilege in this country. Well, I explain the difference. I explain what privilege is. So what privilege, when it's used with white privilege, does not mean money. It does not mean wealth. And I think the word privilege is very tangled up in that. So privilege simply means, in the simplest form, means lack of discrimination. So I'm able-bodied. I don't have disability discrimination. I've got ability privilege. I have Christian privilege. I, I don't have gender privilege. I have uh, heterosexual privilege. I have racial privilege. And in this country, we call racial privilege white privilege. It is impossible to understand what racial privilege is if you don't understand the extent of racial discrimination. And racial discrimination is not taught in our country. Um, and so people are, uh, if, we're, if we're not teaching the true history of what's gone down in terms of racial terrorism, violence, discrimination, everyone is sitting ducks to buy into that level playing field idea that we, there's no work to be done. We don't need to have protests. Like we're all good. We've already achieved it. So 
Um, that's the connection I try to help people make. And I give examples of racial terrorism through U.S. history. Most people don't know that there was a genocide against indigenous people. We're taught that it was like smallpox um, that, that, that killed all the Indians. Uh, we think slavery ended when, with emancipation. We're not, and we're also, we're taught that Africa is a place of, you know, people running around naked. We're not taught that the first um, universities in the world were there. So just the amount of miseducation. Yeah, we've got to leave it there, Debbie, but I, I love uh, your premise around education. And we know one of the things that Donald Trump did, that one of the thousands of things that he did that's harmful to this nation is he uh, basically eliminated uh, anti-bias, anti-discrimination, education, training, workshops, seminars in the federal government. Uh, again, his effort to continue this misinformation of, of you know, people, black, white, of all races, and hopefully that the Biden-Harris administration will do by executive order in the first 100 days is, is reinstitute that very critical anti-racist, anti- uh, you know, that, that bias, implicit bias training in federal government that's so important and make this correction of our education process uh, a central part of their, uh, you know, their administration. And, and I would encourage everyone to read your book. Uh, again, Debbie's book is Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Uh, it's a fascinating memoir about your own personal story. It, it's a call to action. Uh, their actual exercises, you know, at the end of each chapter uh, gives everyone, particularly white people, I think, an opportunity to reflect on their own upbringing, their own beliefs, their own value system. Uh, again, thank you, uh, Debbie, for being a part of this critical conversation, because these conversations are hard. <laughs> and having your friends not talk to you and go silent on you, no one likes that. No one wants to experience that. But if we're going to make any progress on race, we're all going to have to make some personal sacrifices. And that may include saying goodbye to some of those friends who, you know, want to stay stuck in the past rather than move into the future. Uh, again, thank you so much, Debbie, and good luck to you with your book and all the training that you're doing. Thank you so much okay. for having me on. Wow, what a show. I I'm always encouraged by these shows. I want to thank all of my guests, to Chris, to Jane, to Debbie, just amazing work that they're all doing, using their voices, uh, using their platforms to have these very difficult conversations. Thanks to all of my viewers for tuning in. Uh, we know that these conversations aren't easy. Uh, and if they were easy, everybody would be doing them. Uh, but here at the Special Report, we don't shy away from controversy. We don't shy away from those hard topics. Uh, we don't care if folks you know, want to talk about fun stuff. And we like fun stuff, too. And we do fun stuff. But we can't make any progress on, on issues of hate. We can't confront hate if we're not willing to have these very difficult conversations. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue to do them. Just some words to live by before I get out. Uh, Trump's reluctance uh, to denounce white nationalism has encouraged his party's willingness to shelter it. Uh, and we know one thing that we cannot do in this country is we cannot coddle white racists. Uh, we can't coddle white supremacists. We can't coddle racial anxieties rooted in a perceived loss of status and privilege. Uh, we can't continue to coddle those that will not concede the election, will not concede that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the next president and vice president of the United States. And we just have to acknowledge Joe Biden has a tough job ahead of him to heal this nation. 
and no doubt he has a, a myriad of tough decisions he'll have to make. But racism isn't to be negotiated with. It's to be scrubbed from our policies. It's to be dismantled. And it's time, it's beyond time to send a strong and powerful message to white supremacists that they may be stuck on racism, but the rest of the country is moving on. Be safe out there. Remember to wear your mask and remember we are all in this together.